Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, we're studying through the book of Ephesians. And we're in chapter 4 this morning. Our text will be verses 11 through 16. The title, God's Gifts to the Church. We are in the process of searching for God's man to lead us as our next associate pastor of worship. That's not why I'm preaching from this text. I'm preaching from this text because that's the one we came to in our study. But it is appropriate for the time we find ourselves in the life of the church because in these verses we see how God provides to his church gifted men to lead us and how we're to receive those and to respect them and to love them and to follow their leadership. So uh, let's read the first uh, beginning of verse 11 down to verse 16 of Ephesians 4. Scripture says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body from the building up of itself in love. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, so far here in the book of Ephesians, we have learned of all of the riches that are available to us that belong to God. This is the treasure house of the New Testament, we've said. We've also seen that by virtue of being his children, being redeemed by the blood of Jesus, being adopted into the heavenly family, we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But as we see to that, the Lord also gifts to the church leaders. The gifts that Christ gives are both individual and corporate in nature. We saw last week that Jesus has won the right to distribute these gifts because of the victory that he won. Of course, the great victory that Jesus won was the victory over death. Through his resurrection, he shows that he's more powerful than death or or dying. This Memorial Day, as we think about the death of those who have gone before us. For Christians, that does not have to fill us with anxiety and worry and consternation. What it should remind us of is that Jesus is the first of many who will come forth from the grave. That we no longer have to fear death or dying because of the victory he won. And so Paul uses the Old Testament Psalms where David wrote a psalm after a great military victory to say he was going to distribute the spoils of war to the people of Israel as a messianic psalm in which Jesus upon his return to heaven after his ascension now is gifting to the church, his people, spiritual gifts. Last week we saw the individual nature of those gifts in verse 7 where he says, to each one of us grace was given. Now we know that uh, the way to heaven is through a small gate and a narrow path. And I always picture in my mind a subway turnstile 
Well, we can't take a lot of baggage with us and we can't take other people with us. Every person has to enter that road that leads to heaven individually and on their own, though it's not prevented certain preachers and evangelists from trying to get people to heaven in groups. I heard about an evangelist who took a piece of chalk and drew a large circle on the platform and then said, if anyone wants to go to heaven, come stand inside the circle. And once people were inside the circle, he pronounced them all Christians and on their way to heaven. Well, that's uh, not true evangelism. The Bible says that when a person's saved, it's because the Holy Spirit of God deals with them about their individual sins. And he draws them individually and they turn and repent of their sins and, and are saved. But also, he gifts us individually with a special gift. We saw last week that to edify and to build up the body of Christ, the individual component parts, each member has a special gift that's to be brought to bear. And so he says each one receives gifts as Christ measures them out. Certainly at the moment of conversion, each person receives the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But beginning here in verse 11 where I just read, Paul moves to the corporate aspect of the Lord's gifts to his church. Specifically, he talks about the men that God gives the church to lead. Now most of us have met at least one person in our life who was so particularly prideful and self-centered that we might have said of them, that person thinks they're God's gift to the world. (laughs) Ever know anybody like that? Well, in a very real sense, Scripture says that God gives to the church gifts. God's gifts are pastors and teachers. But here's the great irony of that. If a person is self-centered and prideful, he is forbidden from being a pastor or a teacher. And so that's how that works out. So let's look at the outline. Four points. First of all is the list of gifts, then the labor of the leaders, the labor of the church, and finally the long-range plan. So beginning verse 11, we see the list of these gifts of leaders that Christ gives the church. He says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. The first two there are to be taken together, the apostles and the prophets. I know that because Paul takes them together in chapter 2, verse 19. Look there. He says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the apostles and the prophets are those first wave of church leaders, I take it in the first century. Because the apostles were those who were called specifically by Jesus and gifted with supernatural power to perform miracles to prove the veracity of the gospel there in the first century. And the prophets were those who received direct revelation. You remember they did not have the New Testament as we have today. And so the Lord would send his teaching and send his preaching through prophets, through direct revelation. But now that we have the full canon of scripture, uh, there's no longer a need for those. And so it's my belief that uh, with the death of the last apostles in that first century, these particular gifts ceased. You remember that it was upon the teaching of the apostles that we are now are building. That's why when we come together for worship, I say, open your Bibles. And I often tell you to open to one of the epistles written by one of the apostles. And it's not true that the epistles are the wives of the apostles. The epistles are letters often written by the apostles that was given by the Holy Spirit to instruct the church in right living and in right doctrine. 
Now the third one there, he says, are evangelists. Now evangelists you can compare to present day church planters or missionaries. Evangelists were those in the first century who would go out to places where the name of the Lord Jesus was unknown. We would call it pioneer missions today. And there's still places in the world today where the name of Jesus is unknown, so there's still a great need for evangelists. Now when I was growing up, if you'd ask me what evangelist was, I would say it's a person that comes and stays in my house for a week and eats our food and, and dresses in a gaudy suit. <laughs> but that's not what an evangelist is. An evangelist is someone who has the gift of uh, sharing the gospel and they're willing to go to the hard places to do that. But uh, the one I want to focus on today is the fourth and final one. He says he's given some as pastors and teachers. That is to be taken as one office, not as two. There are three words in the New Testament in the Greek that describe the same office of leader. Now, pastor is one who is stationary. Unlike an evangelist, he's not going out to the pioneer areas. He's staying in a place where a church has been established among believers, and he's helping them to grow into spiritual maturity. Now, those three words are pastor and elder and overseer. In the Greek, it's poimen for shepherd, it's episkopos for overseer, and it's presbyteros for elder. And those words seem very familiar to you, don't you? It's where we get the words episcopalian and presbyterian. But Baptists tend to focus on the first one, poimen, shepherd, and it's been anglicized to the word pastor. That's a very good word. I like that word because we know very clearly what the job of a shepherd is. The job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep, is to lead the sheep and protect the sheep. If you want to see the job description of a shepherd, go and read the 23rd Psalm. Go and read John chapter 10. Jesus said of himself is that he is the good and the chief shepherd, right? We are his under shepherds. And so we are responsible to him for the care of his sheep, the ones that Jesus died for. And so we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, gifted men that Christ gives to the church for the benefit of the body. Now I want to stop here for a moment and have a little sidebar. I want to thank you on behalf of our entire pastoral team for the way you respect and care for your pastors here at First Baptist Church of Keller. And I have been around long enough to know it's not that way everywhere, but it is here. You pray for us regularly, you write us notes of encouragement, you take care of us financially, and uh, you give us a nice place to work, and, and we appreciate it. I speak for all of our pastors uh, when I say that. I think the greatest evidence of your care for your pastors is that the average tenure of our pastoral team is over 12 years. The average tenure in the average Baptist church is 2.8 years. And so thank you for the way you do that. I was in a meeting in Houston, Texas three years ago with a group of pastors. And right before the meeting, the guy sitting next to me who's a pastor looked down at his smartphone and the blood rushed out of his face. And I could tell he got a bad message. And after the meeting was over, he said, uh, I just got fired by text message. He had left after church on Sunday to come down to Houston for this meeting. That evening, the deacons got together, decided they didn't like him as their pastor, and they voted him out, sent him a text message the next morning that said he and his family had two weeks to vacate the parsonage of the church. Because some churches view their pastors not as gifts from the Lord to lead them and teach them, but as hired hands 
people to do their bidding, to bury their dead and marry their wed and all the other things that they want him to do. And I know that firsthand because I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad pastored churches in five different states. And I can tell you there are some churches that understand these words and there are those that don't. And thanks to be to God for a church like this one that does. But we've got to keep training every generation, right? And it's not self-serving because one day I'm going to be gone and you'll forget about me and somebody else will come along. And you need to treat them, whomever it may be, with the same respect and honor that you treat your pastors here today. Now, that didn't cost you anything extra. (laughs) And we can go to the second point of the sermon, which is the labor of the leaders. God gives the church leaders what is their job. Well, he tells us. He says, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. The job of the pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, there are a lot of people that think that we pay the the pastors to do all the work, to do all the hospital visits, to take care of all the benevolence needs, to do all the marriage counseling, and that frees up the congregation then to, to go to work and make a living. That's not at all the job of the pastors. Now, the pastor's job is to equip the saints so that they can be ministering at their place of work and at the ball field and in their homes. And here's how that happens. How do you equip someone? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for some certain things, right? For teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is mature unto all good works. And so the curriculum that the pastors are charged to teach as pastor teachers is none other than the Word of God. And so remember, in the early days in the first century church, the Lord was adding daily, such as we're being saved. wasn't very long before they had some logistical problems in the first century church. Some of the widows believed they were being neglected in the daily distribution of benevolence. And so they came to the apostles and the pastors and said, look, here's what's going on. And so God led them to set aside a group of men we know as deacons to help care for the physical needs of the church, he said, so that we may devote ourselves to prayer and the study of the Word. And so the primary job of the pastors is study of the Word and the teaching of the Word through that study, but also to pray for the congregation. Adrian Rogers was very fond of saying, the most important time that a pastor spends every week is not the hour he spends in front of the people telling them about God. It is the hours he spends in his prayer closet telling God about the people. And I think that's right. Study of the Word, the teaching of the Word, and prayer. And then finally, modeling. I tell our staff all the time that 80% of what we do as pastors is to model right actions, speech, behavior, attitudes, prioritization of life. That's what we're to do. Paul's told Timothy, if you want to know how to follow the Lord, watch me. Now that sounds like arrogance, but Paul had come to a place of his life where he was so open and so transparent. He wasn't saying he never failed, but he says, watch me to know how to fail. When you fail, you repent and you confess immediately and you are restored. And here's the amazing thing about the shepherd. He's also a sheep. He's not saying that pastors don't have responsibility to minister in the church. 
But he says their primary responsibility is to train the congregation to minister and then model that by working alongside of them. Reminds me of my uh, favorite pastor joke about the young pastor who was teaching this particular text and he wanted to give the deacons a compliment for how they were doing this. And so he said, look, I'm paid to be good as your pastor. You guys are good for nothing. It didn't come out the way he intended, but the point is made, right? That all of us are supposed to be doing the work of ministry. Now, what is the work of ministry? What, what is the labor? Well, it's, it's, it's what we find in Romans chapter 12 with the list of the gifts. It's the giving to needs as they arise. It's the going to take the gospel. It's evangelism locally and abroad. It's hospitality to the saints who are in need. And it's every other of the tens of thousands of ways that we serve one another in, in the context of the local church. But that's not all. He says something else that the pastors are charged with doing is edifying, building up the congregation. Look what he says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the works of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You know, another way of saying that is edification. An edifice is a building. In fact, this Greek word, oikedome, means to build a house. Now you wouldn't want to live in a house that our pastors built, okay? But remember back in the previous chapters here in Ephesians, Paul and later Peter in his epistle used the same metaphor, the same imagery of a building that's being built. Christ is the cornerstone. Paul says the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, the foundation. And Peter says every member that's added to the church, generation after generation, is a living stone. And ultimately that building is going to be completed as a dwelling place unto the Lord. And so one of the jobs of the pastors is to help put that building into place. What he's really speaking of here is leading the congregation to completion, which means maturity. He says to the building up of the body of Christ. He kind of mixes his metaphors there. He talks about the building and he talks about the body and both of them are being built up to completion and built up uh, to maturity. So the labor of the leaders is to equip the saints and to build up the body of Christ. Now then, that leads us uh, to our third point, and that is the labor of the church. What is the congregation's role in all of this? Well, he tells us in verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of God. So we're supposed to do the works of ministry until these goals are attained. And so it's the work of the congregation to be salt and light, Jesus says. Salt is a preservative. As you're equipped here by the pastors in the church, you go out into the world and you preserve the world. How do you do that? Your very presence as a Christian in your neighborhood has a redemptive effect, or it should. And we look around the landscape of our culture today, would you agree with me it's pretty rotten? It is. Can you imagine if suddenly all the Christians were removed? You want to see rotten, you'll see rotten, okay? The only reason that our culture doesn't go immediately to the natural consequences of depravity is the presence of Christians in the church in the world. 
And once that's gone, then you'll see what we find in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 be the order of the day. Now, and so as we go out, we're salt, but we're also light. The scripture, of course, says that Jesus is the light of the world. And so as we go, we take the message of Jesus. We take the gospel. And we go out and we share our faith. You know, I think a lot of people have the idea that evangelism is inviting people to church to hear the pastor preach. Well, there are occasions where it's right and appropriate to preach a, a message geared towards lost people. But, but I'm the pastor, which means I'm the shepherd, and the shepherd's responsibility is over sheep. Sheep, by definition, are what? They're saved. And so I have to assume that those I'm preaching to on Sunday morning are saved. And so it, it wouldn't be a lot of point to me trying to get you saved every week if you're already saved, right? So, so the way evangelism is, is to work is that you are trained by the pastors to go out into the world outside the four doors of what we call the church, the building, which is not the church, and take that message wherever you go. This is the Lord's plan. So we have the list of the gifts. There's apostles, there's uh, evangelists and prophets, there's pastors and teachers. The labor of the leaders is to equip the saints and build them up into maturity. The labor of the church then is to do the work of service, hospitality, generosity, evangelism. And then finally there's the long range plan. Last Sunday afternoon our long range planning committee met together and they do what they do. They look at the finances of the church, they look at the needs of the church and prayerfully they hope to put together a strategy to meet the needs that they forecast in the future. Now that's always a delicate thing. For one, we're not God, right? And we don't know the future. In fact, we pray every Sunday that the Lord would come back sooner rather than later, right? And, and so it's kind of a, a balancing act. How can one hand you say, Lord, we hope you come back in the morning, but on the other hand, we're going to plan for 10 years down the road. Well, there, there's nothing wrong with that because in the book of James, we see a man who's about to, to go out to conduct some business. And the Bible doesn't rebuke him for making a plan or a strategy for conducting business. It says when you make those strategies, always do so with the attitude, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. So you pray for your long range planning committee and your staff as, as we're getting ready to put together some strategies around here for the future. But when I say long range planning in this sermon, I'm talking about what is the goal? Why does the Lord give the church these men to lead them? Why does he call them to equip the church and to edify the church? What's the end game here? Well, he tells us in verse 13, he says, until we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of God. Now on one hand, all of these four phrases really speak of the same thing. It's talking about bringing them to maturity. Isn't that your goal as a parent? It's not your goal for your child to live under your authority, I hope, indefinitely. I hope it's your goal to, to bring them to a place of maturity so that you, with confidence, can send them out into the world knowing that they have a reasonable chance of making some good decisions, right? They can make it on their own without you. In a similar way in the church, our goal as pastors is to help you grow to that place of maturity so that then you can go and help others grow 
to maturity. It is a tragedy, and it's sad when a child fails to thrive, when, when they don't reach their milestones in, in, in their development. That's painful to a parent. How much more so is it a tragedy when a Christian is born again and remains a spiritual infant, doesn't make progress in sanctification, doesn't hit those milestones, never makes it to that place of maturity where they could disciple and lead other people. The the function and the goal of pastors is to help each member reach that point of maturity. He says, until we all attain... This is not for the all-star team at the church till we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, as I read that this week, it brought a smile to my face because it it gives pastors a degree of job security. (laughs) If there's going to be a need of pastors until every Christian is mature, there's going to be a need of pastors till Jesus comes back, right? Because what a church looks like, what this church looks like, what every true church ought to look like, is that you have individuals at every point on the continuum of sanctification at any one given time, right? So you ought to have brand new Christians all the time, people being baptized into the fellowship. You ought to have godly, mature believers. But you know what happens on that continuum? It's ever moving forward, isn't it? I just read 15 names of people, Christians, members of this church who reach the end of that continuum, and they're now in glory, right? Where we all long to be. And so like it or not, that that path is moving forward and coming behind us all the time, or that next generation. You saw these babies dedicated this morning. Lord willing, that's gonna happen next year and every year until the Lord returns. What a tragedy it would be if you had everybody in the same place of, of sanctification, but big picture, The goal is that no one stays stagnant or worst of all, regresses on that continuum of sanctification. Everybody is moving forward towards maturity. And yes, I think implied here is that we're never going to reach that place of perfection in the here and now. That's why Paul said of himself, it's not as though I've already attained, but I'm ever what? I'm pressing forward. I'm moving ahead in sanctification. And so um, he says, until we all attain the unity of the faith. Now notice there, there is that definite article, the faith. So he's not talking about the concept of faith that leads to salvation, where we express trust and belief in Jesus Christ. He's talking about, remember, the core of what we believe. It's what Jude said when he says, we must earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so it's the job of pastors until Jesus comes back is to bring everyone to understand the doctrines of the church and of the gospel. I used to think that that was basic, that everybody understood the doctrines of the gospel. They do not. And and as, as people continue to join our church, they're coming now from every conceivable background, from no Christian background to other faith traditions And it's important that we do our due diligence to hear their testimony and know what they believe so that we can create a curriculum to help them come to this place where they understand and come to this unity of the faith. And he says, of the knowledge of the Son, to know Jesus. Now, the word know in Greek in its basic form is the word gnosis. 
But this is a different word here. It's epinosis. It's to really know Jesus. This is what Paul said the goal of his life was. To know Jesus in the fellowship of his suffering. That is to grow every day, I take it, in intimacy and closeness with the Savior. That's the role of your pastors, is to help you develop that kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus. And then he sums it up. He says, to a mature man. Now, ladies, this just means a human. To, to, to a mature person, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, Jesus saved you individually. He gifted you individually. He measured out his gifts to you. And you're going to be judged based upon the gifts he gave you, not only the gifts he gave to anyone else. But it's the role and the job of the pastor is that you bring to total completion and full expression of the gifts that are within you. Because our Lord deserves our best, doesn't he? And so as we think about um, the pastors here at our church, I want to say in front of all of you, I'm grateful for all of them. I get to work with them, pray with them, play with them uh, every day. And, and boy, what a blessing. I look back on my life and I thank, you, I thank the Lord for the pastors who invested in me. And as I look to the future, whoever the Lord would call to be our next associate pastor of worship, here's how we're going to receive them if we receive them the way Paul says we should. Not as a hired hand, not as someone whose job is to please us, but someone that the Lord gives us for our equipping and our edification until we all grow to maturity. Amen? And so let's thank the Lord in advance for that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the men that you have equipped and given to this church and to every true church to lead them. And Father, I'm aware, very aware, that all of us are just men. And we have the same capacity to sin, same capacity to disappoint as anybody. Father, I'm aware that there have been pastors who have abused and mistreated the congregation and you judge that. Lord, I pray that would never be the case here at First Baptist. I pray that you would continue to raise up leaders here who love the church, even as Christ loves the church, who are gentle, compassionate, kind, zealous for your word and your truth. Set a good example of humility in word and deed, and who teach the word faithfully. And for this one, whoever it may be, that you are preparing now to lead us in the area of worship, we pray for him. We pray, Father, that we would receive him as a gift from you when the time comes. And we pray, Father, that we would follow his leadership as he follows your leadership. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.